This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. To start off this morning, I'm going to read to you from uh, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. Uh, We're going to read all the way uh, through verses 18, but not to begin with. We're just going to read uh, through verse 5. And that starts out, that says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even though it was written thousands of years ago, it still has deep and meaningful and personal um, things to say into our lives and that you continue to speak to us through that. And I pray that you would speak to us through this passage as we go through it this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. So I feel like I have this trend of of picking easy, light topics every time I come. So I wanted to continue that and talk about mental health this morning. Very light and easy topic, right? Uh, I don't think that I have heard it very often spoken from the pulpit in churches. It is not a common thing to be talked about. It's actually not all that common a thing to be talked about in our society in general. It's growing more and more common as it becomes more and more a common struggle in people's lives. So I think as a church, we need to have a fresh look or a refreshed look at issues concerning mental health. Um, so why is it an important topic, do I think? Um, let's look at some statistics should pop up on the screen here. of U.S. adults, that's one in five, experience mental illness in the year 2020. That's just two years ago. One in five people in the U.S. dealt with a mental illness of some form. 6%, that's one in 20 people, that mental illness was considered serious. All mental illness is serious, but this is a, a clinical term, which means that it impaired one major life activity. So that might be your personal relationships, your ability to feed yourself, your ability to go to work, things of that nature. It impaired one of those major life activities. That's one in 20 adults had a situation in 2020 uh, like that, caused by mental illness. In 2016, 16.5% or one in six youth, that's kids, you know, people under 18, dealt with issues. a mental health disorder. Um, next slide should, should have 21 million people experienced a major depressive episode. 48 million approximately people suffer from anxiety disorders. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among the ages of 10 and 34. It's the 10th overall leading cause of death in the U.S. That's 
an astounding statistic to me. And then perhaps one of the most concerning ones is that only about 50%, only about half of the people that deal with these issues received treatment in 2020. So why is this issue such a problem in our culture? One reason is it's been stigmatized or thought of as a weakness before in the past. And again, that's something that is changing. But in the past, and even still today, people think that there's something less about you, that something other about you if you deal with these problems. It makes you less of a, a man or less of a woman, less of a father or less of a mother or less of a worker or an employee. There's also lots of misconceptions, misinformation, and just plain ignorance about it. We just saw that 50% of people that deal with it don't seek treatment. And a lot of that's because they might not even know that they need treatment. They might not realize that they're suffering from an illness just because it's not a physical illness, it's a mental illness. So we as a church need to be aware of these and we need to be willing and able to respond. So how should we as a church respond? First thing I think we need to do is be honest. We need to be honest about it. We need to be honest about our own experiences and we need to be honest with other people about what they're going through. We need to allow them to be honest and open and vulnerable. And right along with that, we need to have grace with them. If someone you know who is holding up a position in the church or in your life suddenly can't carry on that because of a mental illness that they begin to suffer, we need to be gracious towards them and not just expect them to ignore it or tough it out or whatever. And then I think this passage in 1 Kings 19, it provides a, a sort of a model that we can follow. And I wanna be careful when I say that because I'm not a mental health professional. I do have the great fortune of being married to one, and I did run a lot of the things I said this morning by her, but I am not a clinician. I'm not trained in these areas. I don't work in these areas. So I'm not trying to give you a textbook way of dealing with mental health issues, and I'm not trying to replace seeking treatment. I think that's a very important thing for me to say. If you are dealing with these or you know someone dealing with them, Encouraging them, I encourage you to seek treatment and I encourage you to encourage others to seek treatment. Again, I'm married to a mental health professional. That is her job. If I didn't believe that, we would have a big problem. <laughs> I'm also not conducting, when I read this passage, I'm not conducting traditional exegesis. So I'm not saying that this is what the author of this first Kings chapter was also trying to say. I don't think they're writing a textbook on how to deal with mental health. I don't even think they probably understood mental health in the time that they were writing this. But what I do think is that God responds to Elijah's mental health crisis in a way that can reveal some things to us about how he will respond to us and how we can respond to others. So let's go ahead and talk about why I think Elijah is experiencing a mental health crisis in this moment. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk to you about this morning comes out of my own experiences. I have dealt with mental health issues. Specifically, I've had a depressive episode before in my life. And so I see some similarities between what Elijah expresses and what I went through. But to give you a more textbook answer, 
there's, I want to talk about this guy named Aaron Beck, who was a founder of behavioral psychology and behavioral cognitive therapy, which is just a way of, of treating mental health disorders. It's one of the schools of thought behind that. And he had this thing called Beck's triad, or the uh, Beck's cognitive triad, or Beck's negative triad. I think there should be a slide to show you what that is. So that is the, a uh, model for three ways that a person experiencing a depressive episode views like, what's going on in their brain. So first they have negative views about the world, they have negative views about their future, and they have negative views about themselves. And as you can see from those arrows pointing, they all follow into each other and feed into each other. It's kind of like this negative feedback loop that goes around and around. So I think that we can see this in what Elijah says in this passage. So if we look at himself, how he views himself, in verse six, he says, I'm no better than my fathers. So we don't know a lot about who Elijah's fathers were. Some people, there's lots of debate on who he was. Some people think he was a foreigner. Some think he belonged to a little small uh, group of like a small clan that lived off in the side. But either way, Elijah didn't think that he had risen above his, his fathers. He hadn't done what he was supposed to do. He hadn't completed the mission that God had called him to do. And so he thought he was a failure. That's what we see in this, book, this passage. So he has negative views about himself. We haven't read it yet, but in verses 10 and 14, we can see his views about the world, and in, or his world, and in that he says that Israel has forsaken you, being God. Um, they have killed your prophets. I'm the only one left. That's how Elijah views his world. A fallen world that is broken, that is murdering people, and that he's the only good person left in it. It's not a great view of the world, right? And then uh, we can also say, see how he views his future in that same verse because he says, they seek to take my life away. He feels like he has no future. If he comes out of hiding, he will be killed immediately. So he has to choose between becoming a hermit, being alone for the rest of his life, or you know, dying, as he's already said, or being brutally murdered by the people that he was sent by God to serve. So it's not a great view of his future, right? So we can see that Elijah is manifesting some of this depression, what, what a counselor or a clinician today might call depression, right? So why, why do we think Elijah might be feeling this way? You know, if you've gone through this, that's usually a big question. Why? Why do I feel this way? Um, if we look at what's gone on in Elijah's life up to this point, um, we're really only a couple of chapters into his career as a prophet, but the entirety of it has been marked with miraculous activity. He comes on the scene, he says, hey guys, it's not gonna rain for three years, and it doesn't rain for three years. That's a pretty big miracle, right? Then he goes into hiding, and he's fed by ravens, birds, scavenger birds. Probably not being fed very well, and by birds that aren't really um, altruistic, but he survives on that. God miraculously provides for him, right? 
When that, that period of his life goes, ends, he goes and lives with a, a widow and her son. Um, when he meets them, they have enough food for one more meal, and not even a very good one. But that food lasts throughout the rest of this famine. God miraculously provides not only for Elijah, but for the people that he's with. So his career up to this point has been marked by miracles. Then right before this event that we just read is the story of the Mount of Carmel, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. He puts to death all the false prophets of Baal. And it seems like, if you're taking a worldly view, that, that this is the biggest moment of his career, right? If this is a movie, this is the end. The, the orchestra is swelling. Uh, you know, the superhero has landed. The big bad guy has been slain. Um, so why, you would think, if I was Elijah in this position, I would think, why do I still feel like a failure? Everything I've done has been a success. Everybody else should, is looking at me and saying that I've done good things, but I still feel terrible. You know, on the flip side to that, his life is in danger and his world is a mess. They've just had three years of famine. So the entire nation of Israel is starving to death. And I believe, and this is just me reading into the passage, Elijah internalized that and took that weight of that suffering on himself. I think he thought it was his own fault because he's the prophet that called for the drought, right? And the big bad turns out wasn't slain because Jezebel's still trying to kill him, right? There's this big crescendo moment, but what progress was really made in the nation? So I think Elijah's got these competing emotional states in him. But ultimately, it really doesn't matter why because our external circumstances often don't reflect our internal state. You can have everything laid out before you on a plate, have the easiest life, and you can still be depressed. You can still feel terrible about yourself, your world, and your future. It doesn't matter what your external circumstances are because this is a matter of the mind and the heart. So this is the position that we find Elijah in and he is desiring something drastic. He says, let me die. He's at the end of his rope, right? He thinks that there's nothing for him. So let's look at now how God responds to him. And I'm gonna kind of break up how God's response to him into two different sections. So let's first read, starting in five, into verses eight. And uh, sort of going to be in the middle of five. Um, and it says, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Okay, so I think this is the first section of where we see God's response to Elijah. So let's try to kind of break down what God is doing for him, how God is responding to Elijah. 
in this moment. The first thing he does is he takes care of his physical needs. Elijah is hungry and Elijah is tired. What does God do? He gives him food and he gives him rest. And he gives him strength to carry on on the journey that is ahead of him. So he takes care of his physical needs. I think that's an important thing in understanding how to help people going through a mental health crisis. We have to, their physical needs need to be met. If you don't, don't have, and um, counselors, clinicians will tell you this too, if you don't have a good diet, if you're hungry, you're not gonna be able to take care of this stuff that's going on inside. If you're tired and exhausted, you're not well rested, you're not going to be able to deal with those issues. So your physical needs to be, need to be taken care of. The next thing God does is he guides him to a place of safety. So he takes him from this desert situation where the Israelites, the soldiers of Israel, Jezebel's warriors are literally hunting him and he takes them to the Mount of God. That's God's area, it's God's dominion. No one's coming there unless God lets them. He takes them to a place of safety. So again, if we're talking about someone that's going through crisis or if you're going through crisis and you're not in a place of safety, be it physical or emotional safety, you're not gonna be able to address the things that you need to address. Okay, so that's that, what we've read up to then. So let's go ahead and read the next big chunk of verses here. And that's gonna be verses nine through 14. All right, so Elijah says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, that's God saying, and God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. All right, let's break down what God's doing in this, this section. I think he do, does two things that are very important. Um, firstly, he demonstrates the emptiness of big, dramatic gestures. So what do I mean by that? God sends a whirlwind, an earthquake, a fire. These are big, miraculous events, right? And if you're Elijah, there's probably a part of you that says, God, please just send a whirlwind, send an earthquake, send a fire, something to Israel to make a statement, to fix my problems, to take care of the issue that's going on there. I need something big, I need something dramatic, I need something grand to fix this issue. But God's not in any of those things. The solution to Elijah's problems 
was not in any of those big things. That's why God sends those things to the mountain, I think. That's why God sends those things to the mountain to say, hey, look, I know you think something big needs to happen to change your world. But that's not what you need right now. So what does God do for Elijah that what he needs? And that's, he listens. He says, Elijah, why are you here? And it's not accusatory. It's not, what are you doing here and not out there where I sent you? It's, why are you here? What brought you to? Like, I see in this conversation the stereotypical psychiatrist sitting in the chair and Elijah on the couch. Tell me about what's going on. God is just asking Elijah to say, hey, what do you need? What is going on? Why are you here? What brought you to me today? And Elijah pours it out. Twice God does this. And Elijah says the same thing over and over again. And at no point after that does God say, well, you should do this. Well, you should do that. Well, no, this was going on. No, you didn't understand this. He just listens. God provides him with his presence and he listens. So I think on our next slide, we'll see a few more things that God does. And the first thing is his presence, right? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I've, I've jumped ahead. <laughs> That's actually, the next slide is our next section of verses. But God provides him with his presence. He listens to him. He's there for him. And not in a way that is expecting or requiring anything from Elijah. He is simply there. All right. So let's jump to our last section of verses here, verses 15 through 18, which says, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king of Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so what's God doing for Elijah in this passage? And I think this is God slowly beginning to draw him out of this depressive state. So all that God has done right now is just been there for Elijah, listened to him, not expected any change, any motion, anything. Right now, I think he's going to be slowly to draw him out. And how does he do that? The first thing he does is he encourages him to get active again, and he sets before him a very simple, accomplishable task. All I need you to do is go talk to these three people and say, tell them, hey, I've got some work for you to do. It's very small and very simple. Compared to the other things that Elijah has done, this is probably the easiest thing he's ever had to face, right? But it gets him out of, it gets him off the couch, so to speak. It gets him back into the world. He's back interacting with people. He's back moving. And if you've ever talked to a counselor because you've been going through a depressive state, one thing they will encourage you to do is do something active. Take a walk every day. It can be for five minutes. Um, if you listen to Jordan Peterson, he's a very controversial guy, but one of the things he says is clean your room, right? Clean your room. Nobody has to see you doing it. Nobody has to know that you're doing it. It's not about 
the external things. It's just about getting you moving up and active and doing something. And in that doing, our bodies begin to produce the chemicals that we need to get back to feeling the way that we, we should, right? It's another way of taking care of your physical needs as well as your emotional needs. The next thing he does is he makes it clear he's not alone. He tells him, hey, look, you think you're alone, but there are 7,000 people, your countrymen, who have never turned their back on me. You thought you were the only one who hadn't turned their back on me, but there's 7,000 of you. It's a pretty big number, right? And Israel's a big country in that day, you know, so that's probably a small percentage of them, but he's not alone. That's important. Because if you have suffered from depression or other mental illnesses, one thing that you almost always feel is like you are alone. No one will understand what I'm going through. No one knows how to help me. No one cares. Some things you, sometimes you think you're alone in your circumstances. So, um, you know, I'll I'll pick on Mario because he likes to pick on other people, right? I'm sure there are times that in the church, Mario feels like he's alone. He feels like if he you know, died or got sick, the church would just crumble because who else is going to take care of it? But Mario's not alone. And hopefully you know that. And, you know, as elders, it's our job to make sure he knows that. And as church members, it's part of your job to make sure that he knows that. And I'm sure God is telling him that, he, that that's the case. But Elijah needed to hear those words. Someone needed to take Elijah to the side and say, hey, look, you're not alone. The weight... The entire weight of Israel is not on your shoulders. There's 7,000 people. And with that in mind, the last important thing that God does for him is he provides him with a companion. He provides him with someone who is going to carry that weight with him through his future. Elisha is going to be prophet in your place. This isn't the end of Elijah's career, but he knows that if his career were to end suddenly, someone's going to take up that mantle, literally. Later on in the, in the next book, Elisha literally takes up Elijah's mantle. It's a powerful word image if you read that passage. So God provides him with someone to walk step by step the rest of his journey. Everywhere he goes, Elisha will be there. So when Elijah can't bear the weight, he's got someone to bear it with him. So I think these are some very important things that we see in this passage on how to deal with people in crisis. As we wrap up here, I wanna talk about two more things. Firstly, I wanna talk about what can we expect from God when we are in crisis. If we are going through, be it a mental health crisis or some other crisis in your life, what can we expect from God? And the first thing we can expect is his presence. We are his children and he will be with us. We're not alone. What did he tell the disciples? What did Jesus tell the disciples as he ascended into heaven? I'm sending you my spirit, a counselor. That word's meant a little bit different then. It's not the same kind of counselor that we know now. But the Holy Spirit can be that counselor for us if we need him. God can be that counselor for us if we need him. The next thing we can expect from God is for him to meet our immediate needs. I don't know about you guys, but God has met my needs in the past. Multiple times. 
you know, when I left college, I had, I kind of left it in a, not the greatest circumstances. It's actually a result of my own depressive episode. I left my grad program I was in, and I spent about six months doing absolutely nothing until I had no money. I was like weeks away from not being able to pay my rent or buy any food. And miraculously, God gave me a job at Chick-fil-A. And I spent the last 13 years working at Chick-fil-A for him. It's because of God's provision. He met my needs when I needed him to. He also gave us guidance. God took Elijah from the place where he was in danger to a place of safety. He guided him. He will give us guidance. He will give us wisdom when we need wisdom. He will give us clarity when we, give, we need clarity. Now I have a question, and that question is, should we expect miracles? And on the surface, or on the face of it, the immediate answer is yes. You know, we expect miracles from God all the time. God gives us miracles all the time. Sometimes we don't recognize them as miracles. But when we're talking about mental health issues or times of internal stress and crisis, should we expect miracles from God? And my controversial answer to that is probably not. Because when I was going through a depressive episode, when I was in my deepest, darkest moment, a miracle would not have changed that. It would have just been some gloss over the top of it. It would have actually served to hide away the things that I needed to deal with. What I needed was someone to walk through me, walk me through that dark moment. I needed personal, internal growth. I didn't need a miracle. I needed to be changed from the inside out, which is in and of itself a miracle, but not the kind of miracle I'm talking about. It's not the snap of your fingers and your problems are gone. I needed to learn how to deal with that problems. I needed character growth. I needed to learn that I wasn't the smartest person that ever walked the face of the earth. And I learned it the hard way. <laughs> uh, so a miracle wouldn't have done that. If my, the papers that I had piling up in my grad program all of a sudden were written, it wouldn't have taught me any lessons that I needed to do. If the struggles with laziness that I was dealing with all of a sudden were gone, it wouldn't have taught me the things that I needed to do. If all the responsibilities bearing down on my shoulders were suddenly lifted away, I would still have that problem today and the responsibilities of fatherhood and careers and being a husband to my wife and being an elder in the church, I wouldn't be able to deal with because I never learned it back then. So a miracle back then would not have solved my problems. So when I go through these dark times again, and I have since then, I did when my mom died. I did when Gideon um, was first born. And we were dealing with a lot of things there. I... If I had had the miracle back then, I wouldn't have known how to deal with them then. I wouldn't have been prepared for those moments. But God prepared me in a way that allowed me to deal with them, that taught me to recognize the warning signs in my own life of when I'm starting to walk down a dark path internally up here. So should we expect miracles from God? Yes, with a caveat. I think that caveat is we're going to, we should expect God to do for us whatever it is we need from him. And if you need a miracle, I believe God will give it to you. But if you need growth, if you need patience, if you need whatever, I think God will give you those things too. And they can be hard, but that's what God wants us from us. 
He's the potter, and we're the clay, and he's forming us and he's molding us into the people that he has called us to be. Okay. So I think those are the things we can expect from God. We can expect him to be there for us. We can expect him to meet our needs. We can expect him to guide us, and he can, we can expect him to do for us what we need from him. So how should we respond to those who are in crisis? How should we as a church respond? How should we as individuals respond? Maybe you know someone who is like Elijah under that broom tree and just lying down waiting to die. Maybe you, you know someone that's going. So how should we deal with that? And my slide is a little goofy there. So you might not be able to see it, but that first one that's, I think, hidden by the title is be present. So we're going to model our behavior after God's behavior towards Elijah. We're going to be present for them. What does that mean? Sometimes that means that we're available if they need to talk. But sometimes people will need you to be proactively present. Maybe there's someone in your life who you used to see on a regular basis, used to call every, every week, used to have game nights with them, used to go to the movies with them, you used to see them at work all the time, but maybe they've fallen off the map for you. You might need to be proactively present. You might need to seek them out. Because that's what God does for Elijah, right? Elijah runs off into the desert, and the angel of God shows up. He proactively, he doesn't call him. God could have been like, hey, Elijah, come over here. Come over here. He doesn't do that. He's there. (laughs) Hey, Adeline. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. apparently I needed her to show up for me this morning <laughs> okay so we might need to be proactively present we might need to take an extra effort to be in someone's life to involve ourselves in someone's life that might be inviting them over for dinner that might be inviting them to go out somewhere that might be dropping off food for them as you know, that they're going through a hard time and probably don't want to cook. So, hey, we made a big dinner. We have extra. Here's this Tupperware for it. You can eat it now. You can eat it tomorrow. You can heat it up for lunch. You know, whatever. That just sends a message to someone to let you know, let them know that you're there and they're not alone. Right along with what I was saying, we, we might need... We might be called upon to meet a need if it arises. Maybe you know a couple of parents who just have a young kid and they're, you know, underwater with all the pressure from it and they need a night out. Maybe they need to go to the movies. Maybe they just need to have a couple hours where they can nap and you can watch their kids for them. You say, hey, bring your kids. Drop your kids over at my house. You guys go do what you want to do. Have some time for yourself. Recover. Maybe you know someone who's like barely making it monetarily. And you can say, hey, don't worry about your groceries this week. I got you. Let me fill your car up with gas. Oh, you got a flat tire? Let me pay to replace that for you. Maybe you don't even need to give them money. Maybe you just change the tire for them, you know? But people will have needs that arise. And if they're in crisis, they don't have the mental capacity to address those needs. I know, like, when I was going through what I was doing, I'd sit on my couch and be like, do 
Do I even have the energy to drive to McDonald's and get some food? You know, when you're going through those dark times, you don't have it in you. You don't have the, the capacity to deal with those needs. And so if something happens that is stressful already, and you're already at the peak of your stress, you're just going to let your world sort of blow up, crumble. So we can meet those needs for them. We can provide places of safety. And again, this can take two forms. Maybe someone lives in a place that isn't very good. Maybe you know a, a single person who is living with roommates and their situation is bad. Maybe you know a married person who's living in a situation is bad. You know, maybe they're in an abusive situation. Maybe you know someone who's a Christian who lives with unchristians, you know, non-Christians who are uh, drawing them down into darkness. You can provide a place of safety. Hey, come crash on my couch. Hey, come spend some time with me and my family. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be they come live in our spare room. But you need to prove they need physical safety. Maybe someone you work with walks to work and you could pick them up and drive them to work. Hey, let me pick you up. Let me take you home. That's providing safety to them. But also, people need emotional safety. They need to know that no matter what they tell you, you're not going to disappear out of their life. Because a lot of people that have gone through these situations have. That's exactly what they happen. They opened up to someone, and that person disappeared, ghosted them. Sometimes it was important people like their moms and their dads or their spouses. But they need to know that they can trust you. They need to know that there is emotional safety to be in. Because they're never going to open up to someone unless they feel safe with them. The other thing we should do is ask God for wisdom. We don't know how to deal with it. We are not clinicians. We are not trained in how to deal with medical, uh, medical or mental health issues, right? But God knows more than anyone who has ever lived, and God can give you wisdom and guidance in how to address this person. And again, I'm not talking about replacing treatment or therapy. I'm talking about how we help them in times when they're out of that. You know, treatment is often only an hour a day or an hour a week or an hour a month. They've got a lot of other life to deal with. So God can help guide us in walking with them. We also don't want to try to fix things, right? If someone had come to me when I was depressed and said, oh, what you need to do is start working out. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, what you need to do is just get down and start, you know, reading, you know, have three hours a day that you dedicate to your homework, one hour a day. Don't try to fix me. Because again, what, all we can fix are the external circumstances. We can't fix what's broken inside and what's broken is internal. But we're not trying to fix them. We're just there for them. We're present for them. We're being a um, place of safety for them. We're going to be patient with them. Sometimes these are lifelong struggles. You know, if Mario came to the elders next week and say, hey guys, I just, I've been going through a rough time. I don't think I can preach next Sunday. I don't know if I'll ever preach again. You think we're going to say, all right, you're fired. We're going to start the, the searching committee. 
we're going to be patient with him. It's like, all right, Mario, you take some time, take a break, we'll pick up the slack, heal, whatever. We're going to be patient with him. We're going to understand that this is a process, and we're going to help them along that process. And we're not going to expect them to suddenly start feeling better, right? You can't do that. The famous thing is, uh, just get over it, right? My, something my dad said to me all the time as a kid, just tough it out, just walk it off, get over it. But when you're dealing with someone in crisis, that's basically the same thing as saying, I don't care about you or your problems. I don't want to deal with them. You can just go deal with them on your own. So we're going to be patient with them. And the last thing we can do is to be an Elisha. So what do I mean by that? I mean someone that's going to walk with them. Someone's going to be there tomorrow, the next day. Someone that they can trust to pick up the slack when they falter. You know, maybe um, someone you work with, Eric, maybe someone in your teaching department feels like they're all alone. That they're the only one responsible for educating these kids. They need to know that if they don't come in tomorrow, you're going to be there. The weight of the world is bearing down on their shoulders figuratively, and they need to know someone is going to be there to help them hold that up. Right? And, you know, that's going to vary from situation to situation what it looks like. But I think for Elisha, that was probably the biggest thing in giving him relief. Or Elijah, excuse me. For Elijah, that was the biggest thing he needed. Because he thought that he was solely responsible for Israel's salvation. That wasn't the case. God sent him Elisha. Just because it didn't get solved in Elijah's life didn't mean he failed. He was planting seeds. Elisha was there to tend them. Elisha was there to continue the work. And that's what we can be for people. We can be in Elisha and say, hey, you started this, It'll continue. Don't worry. Even if you can't do it anymore, it'll continue. So maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you need an Elisha. Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking for that earthquake or that firestorm or whirlwind, that big, dramatic solution. What you really need is to hear that little whisper of God saying, I'm here, I'm present. So if that's what you need, I'd like to pray with you this morning. I'd like to encourage you to reach out to others. You know, I've said this before, but you can reach out to Mario or myself or the elders. You can reach out to other people in the church. Maybe there's someone close to you, but you're not alone. If you're here and you feel like you're crushed by the weight of the world, you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. At the very least, you have God. But even more than that, you have the church. That's what the church is here for, right? We're here to bear up with each other, walk with each other. So let's pray. God, I'm astounded by you. You are 
greater than anything we could imagine. You're greater than the universe itself. You're greater than the nation of Israel was. Yet, when Elisha was broken, you were there and you healed him and you knew exactly what he needed. And I thank you, God, that you are that for me, that you have been there in my darkest moments, that you have never turned your back on me. And I thank you that you are there in the same way for everyone in this building. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who is figuratively lying under that tree, waiting to die, that you would send them an Elisha. And if there's anybody here where you are preparing to be the Elisha for someone else, I pray that you would open their eyes to see who you have put before them that is in need, God. I thank you, Lord, again, I thank you that you are with us always and that we do not have to do this alone. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Adam. Let's give Adam a nice hand. <clears throat> we want to thank you for listening. We pray that you were blessed and encouraged. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast and listen whenever you like. To find out more about Mosaic Church, please visit www.mosaicchurchtlh.com.